Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Okay, the scripture reading today is John 21, 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. They called, he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard them say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with the fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Speaking of embarrassing moments, I had an embarrassing moment this last week at our staff meeting, we usually get together and talk about the passage that we're going to have the sermon on uh, on the Sunday. And so last week, we were talking about the story of Thomas who was doubting and all that kind of stuff. And I, I had st- structured the sermon around this idea that, for me, it's such a beautiful thing that as, as John was concluding his gospel with that story about Thomas who was doubting and what moved him was seeing the wounded body of Jesus and how incredible it is at the very beginning of John's gospel, we find the word became flesh. And I was so excited about just geeking out about that. And then, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. And these are the final words in John 20, which is the perfect way of ending the gospel. Uh, This is how it ended. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that was it. The story is over. John is complete. And uh, someone in the staff go, there's actually another chapter, Mark. You know, there's John 21, which is a sign that I'm reading the Bible on my computer, not like an actual Bible. You can't see it. So I was like, yeah, of course there's another. It's a test. It's a test. And y'all failed. You, you don't fail because you caught that. Um, I have a doctorate now, so don't question me. Don't even, yeah. 
but I was astonished. To, it feels like the end of the story, right? It feels like that's a, you just, everything was summed up. It was ready to move on. But John didn't wrap it up. And instead, it kind of the, the ending kind of continues on, kind of like that awkward moment when you say goodbye to someone and you keep walking in the same direction. You know, like, do we keep saying goodbye to each other? Like, John's gospel feels like it ended and it kept going on. We found ourselves here in John 21. And many people, Bible scholars, actually believe that John 21 should function like an epilogue. You know, for those of you who love the epilogue, it's like the end of a movie or a story And everything is done. The narrative arc is complete, but there's just a little bit more, a snapshot of something else going on. In John 21, we find something like that happening. In particular, what is happening is there's a couple of strings that are loose pertaining to one person in particular, someone who is really, really important for the formation of the Christian movement, this individual named Peter. In Matthew's gospel, the disciples were told after Jesus had rose from the dead, to go to Galilee and wait for him there. And what's interesting is that that's actually these disciples' hometown. This is where it all began. This is, uh, this is where they were raised and where they met Jesus. And they had to go back to their hometown and wait. And have you ever noticed in your own life, when you go back to your hometown, how easy it is for you to revert to the earlier versions of yourself? Have y'all experienced that? You know what I'm talking about when you go back home? Like, I'm a grown man. I, like, shave my face once a, once a week. Like, I'm a grown man, right? Because that's what we do. I do my own taxes. I just did a cash-out refinance on my home before interest rates were crazy. I know things, right? But when I go home, I revert to, like, a very middle school version of myself. Towels are staying on the bathroom floor after I shower. I, uh, you know, I I can snap at my parents. I know you guys do this, too. Eye rolling becomes really easy, right? You know, like, your mom asks one too many questions about your high school best friend, and you're like, I don't know, mom. God knows you have Facebook. Why don't you look them up, you know? Am I alone in that? It's really easy to... Go back and revert. It's pathetic. There's like this gravitational pull that often sometimes, you know, we feel uh, to become the former version of ourself. This is why change is so hard, especially in the spiritual life. This is why change is so hard, is that we might have powerful experiences. We we might have the insights and great uh, understanding, but when we get back into the mundane, when we get back into places we used to be, when we have to wait We have this tendency to just forget who we are, or maybe more accurately, forget who we're becoming. These disciples return to Galilee. They are changed people. They've seen so much. They've also have already encountered a snapshot of a risen Savior. They've experienced things. But when they go home, I think that they have found themselves drifting back into old ways of living and also old ways of seeing the world. In the waiting, this is what happens. Peter says in verse 3, I'm going out to fish. Perhaps I'm just going back to what I know best. I'm going to go out and fish. If I have to wait, at least I'm going to do something with it. So six other people go with him, and they return to what they know. And I wonder if they are on that boat over that long evening, reeling from everything that happened. They're perhaps talking about what it all means now. And uh, this takes place. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So at the end of a dark evening, fish in the sea, with 
without anything to show for it. They're now close to the shore, and Jesus is there. And once again, the mystery, I don't get it, but they don't recognize Jesus. Early in the morning, this is verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called to them, friends, haven't you, caught any, haven't you any fish? I don't think this is Jesus mocking them. Maybe perhaps this is what happened in the morning. The fishermen would come in and people would go, do you have any fish? I'm looking, I'm in the market for it. And they answered, no. Then Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, I don't, I'm not a big fisherman, but I have just this assumption that moving a net from one side of a boat to the other, just maybe, I don't know, five feet, isn't going to dramatically change much, right? But this is what Jesus tells them to do. Like dragging that heavy, wet net that has caught nothing but maybe like old tires, flat tires that's in the sea or something, move it five feet and get ready because it's about to be payday. It's about to come in. And the crazy thing is that they actually did it. They actually did it. Um, and when that takes place, the net was so full, they couldn't even pull it in. And then verse 7 reads, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is code for the person who wrote the story, the one who's the most loved and beloved, and the one that's probably the most humble as well, uh, John, he began to, and he's also smart because he puts it all together. He's the first one that says, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, it is the Lord, he wrapped, him, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped in the water. Peter, Simon Peter, is so eager to be with Jesus that he just dove right in. It was almost silly. It was almost childish. But something was unlocked within Peter with the idea that Jesus is here now. Even though Peter does not have a stellar record over the last couple weeks, here he just foolishly, impulsively jumps into the sea after working a long night because someone said that Jesus is on the shore. And so the rest of the, of the disciples, they arrive with their nets full of fish, and Jesus was sitting there with breakfast ready. Don't you love that picture of like just Jesus sitting on the side of a sea with breakfast ready? And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. And this now is the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples. So this is the moment we have here. This is the snapshot of it. The writer, for whatever reason, puts a pin at this story at this point, maybe so that we can just stop and sit with it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the second half of the story next week. But let's put a pin in this moment and just stop and think of what's happened here. What is taking place in this epilogue of sorts? Well, I think this moment is doing something quite profound. It's actually mirroring the very first time that these disciples, especially Peter, they met Jesus. That took place in Luke chapter 5, if you want to read that story. But in that passage, Jesus was preaching on that same sea. So many people were gathered that he, he felt like he needed to get back a little bit. And so he asked this random fisherman, could I get in your boat? Now, sadly, this fisherman had an unsuccessful voyage, didn't catch anything, but he said, sure. And so Jesus got on the boat of a man named Simon, who would later be called Peter, and gave this profound lesson, this teaching. And then afterwards, Jesus said to them, if you want to catch something, go to the deep water and try to fish once more. And then Simon said this, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. 
but because you have said so, I will let down the nets. So they follow Jesus' instruction and they catch so much fish that they can't bring in the net. At this moment, though, in Luke chapter 5, Simon falls on his knees and begins to say, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. But then Jesus responds, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, okay, so let's put those two stories side by side. The similarities are pretty obvious, right? What's taking place in John 21 is almost like a callback of sorts. Consider, if you will, how powerful this moment would feel for Peter. This idea of after everything he experienced, now they're meeting Jesus again in a moment so similar on perhaps even the same space, the same location. And after a night of fruitless fishing, Jesus appears with an abundance. Just take a moment, and what do you think that would have meant to Peter after everything he encountered? Going back to square one, going back to where it all started. Jesus is taking Peter back to the beginning, not to revert to what was, but perhaps to reveal what was taking place all along the story. What was taking place. This epilogue is kind of like, you know, like the end of Sixth Sense. I'm not going to spoil it. I know it just came out. Um, but it's kind of like the end of Sixth Sense or the Kaiser Soze moment from The Usual Suspects. It's like you experience something at the ending and all of a sudden your eyes are just opened up to replay and re-understand everything that has taken place. What I think Jesus is doing here is having Peter have this encounter just like it, what introduced this moment, not that Peter revert back to that old point of view, but that Peter could see things differently, have this moment where he go, oh, this was what Jesus was up to all the way back then, even though I was clueless of what he was promising, what he was claiming, what his agenda was, now I see it, now it makes sense this is a transformational moment that we find here that Jesus is drawing in deep waters so that Peter could find himself not only seeing Jesus differently, but seeing himself differently because of everything has changed. Quite often in our spiritual journey of transformation, it's not always us going into uncharted territory. It's not always us like going into spaces we've never been. Quite often in our spiritual transformation, it's a journey of returning. It's going back and experiencing the redeeming work of Jesus in our past. This is why so many of us uh, have found health in counseling and therapy, because much of that work is the work of returning. And many of us would not like to return. Uh, confessional moment, I once saw a spiritual director and he was prodding a couple times about why I wanted to come visit him. And he eventually put a finger on, I think you're here because you have this one really conflicted relationship that you're experiencing. And it mirrors another one from your past. And I said, I think you might be right. And he said, I feel like you need to figure out uh, how to learn to exist and find health in this relationship. Because if you don't, they're going to keep showing up in your future the same personality type. Guys, I cussed them out. (laughs) 
I did. I cussed him out. Uh, yeah, pastoral moment. Because I was just, there's something in me. I was like, I don't want to keep going back. Because I knew that that was the work that we we're going to do, is to figure out a redemptive thread of what God was up to in all those relationships in the past. And for me to be transformed to go into the future. We think that we can discover ourselves in these present and in the future, but oftentimes Jesus wants to take us back. Wants to take us back, and that is incredibly difficult. Why is it difficult? Because the disappointments that we have in our back, our our past, the, the pain, the hurt, the conclusions that we know were wrong back then, the people who let us down, the regrets that we have. It's so much easier to leave it behind, but there is the resurrected Jesus again and again, we find, wanting to redeem and restore all of that in our past. The resurrected Jesus bringing Peter back to the beginning to reintroduce himself and to reintroduce Peter to to, uh, himself as well. So as we were preparing for the Vine's seventh birthday, I was a bit reflective over what we've encountered, what we've experienced, what the vine has been and what our ministry has been. What I've come to believe is that one of the primary ministries of this church, one of the missions of this church, is not to help people reinvent themselves or as a church for us to try to reinvent a more modern, cool version of Christianity, which oftentimes can be like a shadow mission is like, all right, we're just going to have a, a different veneer over this Christian church experience and have it just more hip and cool or whatever. And obviously, you know, I can try my hardest, and I would even fail at that. But I actually think our, the, our church's mission is something different. It's actually to help people reclaim a life with Jesus, to do the difficult work of going back and reclaiming the simplicity and the beauty of a life with God, perhaps the very things that first captivated your heart and your imagination of a life of God, to actually go and redeem those things, to actually look at what started this whole Jesus movement and reclaim that and try to figure out how to do it in this day and age, believing that the resurrected Jesus is still meeting with people and creating this movement in this world. It's not to reinvent anything. It's an act of redemptive claiming. What I see with the disciples in this post-resurrection moment, I actually see within us. There's a couple of different impulses that we might have. It's either the temptation of, all right, I believe that I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I guess I need to just go back to the framework that I was once given, even though it feels clunky and it doesn't always fit. That's one idea. They just, maybe the disciples were tempted to go back to that old framework. The opposite is also a temptation, which is just to reject it altogether. Say, there's just, I just can't do it. Outright reject it altogether, which gives its way to cynicism and doubt. I see that within us. I've seen that in my own life story. Yet the work of this Eastertide, this season that we're living in, is a faithful returning. There's been a lot of conversation around the idea of deconstruction. I know I've, many of you, we've visited, we've had coffee and tacos and talked about what deconstruction looks like and I know this is nothing new, but typically this, this process right here, it's three steps that can happen over and over and over again. There's this idea that we construct a framework, an understanding, a point of view, and then life happens, that things kind of fall apart. We, we find holes in what was constructed. Things don't feel like they 
work like they used to. And so we have this difficult work of reconstructing again, choosing what stays in it, what needs to be taken out, trying to find a different way to process life and find meaning in life. Now, I think this is a helpful way of looking at it. But recently, a friend shared a different point of view, and I've kind of tweaked it a little bit, but I feel like it's actually really, really helpful for me understanding what this work could look like in our life. And it's like this. We begin with a childish worldview. Childish meaning like it's overly simple. It's constructed mostly on what was given to you. Like if your authority told you something and you believed it, right? It's overly simple. It's constructed mostly by our wishes and expectations of other people. But then life happens and that simplicity fades away. And... Simplicity and beauty are are confronted by disappointment and letdowns and complexity. And that childish worldview gives way to cynicism. This is the cynicism that can be felt after things fall apart. It's It's when you see the childish innocence is replaced by this negative framework and distrust becomes the new norm. And all of a sudden you begin to look at everything with a sense of uh, critical, like a critical posture towards life, to everything that you came from, towards other people who you would like to call their beliefs childish, right? (laughs) That's this kind of point of view. Yet, even in the cynicism, I've experienced this in my own life, and I've heard you say this, you still kind of miss something that was. Even though you could never go back, there's something that I still miss something that was back then. Much like these disciples, they found themselves in this boat on the same sea where they encountered something that changed their life. They can't go back to that framework, but they know they're being invited into something else. And then Jesus shows up, and the work of Eastertide, the work of the resurrected Jesus, is to help us reclaim a new understanding, one that's not chained to cynicism, one that's just, you don't have to go back to childish points of view and worldviews. There's another way of living, another way of seeing the world, and it's this third stage, which is childlikeness. The difference between childish and childlikeness is that a childlike point of view, a framework of faith, has been weathered by real life. Like it's actually experienced the sorrow and the limitations of points of view in the past. It's been deepened by doubt and intellectual honesty. And just like Jesus' body, It bears the wounds of life in the human experience, but it has found life again. Jesus would often lift up a child and say, if you want to enter into the kingdom, you must become like one of these. The the entrance of the kingdom is the entrance of childlikeness. For you and for me, it's a childlike faith. This is a sign, signs of childlike faith. It's an embrace of mystery and wonder and beauty. It's a childlike faith that has simplicity, not born in naivety, but simplicity in rejecting all the layers that were once taught were essential. It's, there's a renewed openness to the world, like a child is open to this world. And you know children, they have Question after question after question. They are okay with their unknowing and they want to seek something deeper. Childlikeness is returning to the few building blocks and clinging to them 
almost like the verses that have the tendency to summarize everything, they take on a new power. Uh, verses like this, the great commandment is to love God and love others. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. A verse like this would mean so much. The only thing that counts is faith expressed in love. That's what we find. And what we, we, what we see with a childlikeness is one of the greatest fruits is the fruit of joy. Of joy. This is the opposite of cynicism. Like cynicism hardens the heart. It closes one off to joy. The kind of joy where you could jump out of a boat because you see a friend on the shore. A childlike joy where like having breakfast around a campfire after pulling an all-nighter sounds like a great idea. There's a sweetness to this moment because it's kind of childlike. The resurrected Jesus just lingering around a meal. Which is pretty fascinating because the rest of these stories, it seems like Jesus pops in and out. Like as soon as they realize it's Jesus, he's gone. But here he lingers with his buddies on the side of the sea. In this work of reclaiming, what we find here, this childlike work of reclaiming is not only about realizing who Jesus was and is, but it's about seeing who we are as well. In the first moments of, in the first moments of Luke's passage, Jesus uh, meets Peter. Peter realizes it's him. And what does Peter do in that first encounter? He falls on his knees and says, get away from me. I'm, I'm a sinful man. I can't be in your presence. And here in John 21, what is his posture? He jumps in the ocean because he just got he's got to get closer to Jesus. Peter recognizes Jesus and he swims after him from shame and guilt in that first moment to joy and silly abandonment. It makes me wonder, if you were to be encountering the presence of God in your life, what would be your posture? It would be of one of distance, of guilt and shame staying away from me, or is it this longing to be close to Jesus? I know that this church is comprised of people in all different backgrounds, and experiences of faith. Some who grew up in church, some not. Some who have been trudging through the swamps of cynicism and are hoping to make it out on the other end, and other people who've been through that a couple times over. I am grateful that John's gospel didn't conclude in chapter 21 because we need to watch Peter. We need to watch Peter and his journey. If the story is about proving that Jesus was alive, it could have concluded in John 20, but this is a story about how Peter was reclaimed and made alive anew. And one thing that we all can share from all our different backgrounds is this, that Jesus is absolutely committed for us to discover who we truly are. Jesus is absolutely committed to that for you and for me. This is displayed, I love this quote from Thomas Merton. He said, there's only one problem on which all of my existence, my peace, my happiness depend is to discover myself in discovering God. And if I find him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. This is the paradox. If you want to know who you truly are, it's found in discovering who Christ is. And in finding and discovering who Christ is, we will discover who we are. Easter tide is this paradoxical experience where we can linger with the resurrected Jesus not only to discover what Christ's purpose is, what Christ's mission is, kingdom, 
but our part in it as well. It is this paradox because we become more and more aware of the depth of God's love. We discover the depth of our own identity, and in doing so, we become more and more childlike, bound by simplicity, joy, and above all else, the importance of love. It sounds childlike, but guys, it's all that matters. And as we turn here in just a couple moments to the waters of baptism, this is a reminder of this childlike posture that we can have, that we can be filled with imagination to understand what it means to be born again. Because I think this is what Peter experienced on that day. He was made alive again. He saw the world differently, and he saw himself, and it would never be the same. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.